7415 WBCQ Monticello, Maine, USA This is KPTV Channel 12, Portland Another challenge for the Green Hornet his aide, Cato, and their rolling arsenal, the Black Beauty. On police records, a wanted criminal, the Green Hornet is really Britt Reed, owner-publisher of the Daily Sentinel. His dual identity, known only to his secretary and to the district attorney. And now, to protect the rights and lives of decent citizens, rides the Green Hornet. Welcome to This Week in Amateur Radio International. This is your all-amateur radio news and entertainment magazine of the air. This is edition number 314, with the release and air date of Sunday, January 30th, 2011. Quiet, please. In exactly 15 seconds, we'll be on the air. A writer for World Radio Online says Morse code use is on the rise. One of the Italian two-meter repeaters interfering with ham radio space communications goes QRT. Logbook of the World, now available to hams who use the world above 50 megahertz. According to a report attributed to the ISS fan club website, one of three Italy-based amateur repeaters reported on last week as allegedly operating in the satellite subband of two meters has gone off the air. This has managers of D-Star repeater IR3UEF have apparently shut it down of their own accord. A report on the ISS Fan Club website says that the IR3 UEF repeater operated by the Italian Amateur Radio Association and interfering with the ISS downlink on 145.8 MHz is now gone. Also, the Veneto Regional President of the Italian Amateur Radio Association, IZ3CLG, wrote the ISS support group to inform it that he shut down the VHF port of the IR3 UEF repeater. He also noted that the repeater was only used for local D-Star tests. Also, that it was properly authorized to do so by the government. IZ3CLG said that the decision to shut it down was taken solely in the name of cooperation and ham radio spirit. As most hams are aware, 145.8 MHz is used by the amateur radio station on the International Space Station as a primary space-to-earth communications channel, especially for educational school contacts. The National Aeronautics and Space Administration is asking ham radio operators worldwide to help confirm that the new NanoSatellite D nano satellite is working. On Wednesday, January 19th at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time, engineers at the Marshall Space Flight Center confirmed that NanoSatellite D had ejected from the fast, affordable scientific and technology satellite. The ejection event occurred spontaneously and was identified when engineers at the center analyzed onboard telemetry. The ejection of NanoSatellite D has also been confirmed by ground-based satellite tracking. Amateur radio operators are being asked to listen for the signal to verify that NanoCLD is operating. Its signal can be found on 437.270 MHz. Again, 437.270 MHz. This information should be sent to the NanoCLD dashboard at http colon slash slash nanoCLD, that's at one word, dot EGR dot scu dot edu slash dashboard d-a-s-h-b-o-a-r-d dot htm the latest issue of the free iaru monitoring system newsletter reports on russian radar in seven megahertz the newsletter says that the over-the-horizon radar from Russia was active between 7,000 and 7,200 kilohertz with burst transmissions on five different frequencies on December 30th of 2010. The pulse rate was, as always, 66.66 pulses per second. Meantime, another over-the-horizon radar that is based in Cyprus has been destroying communications on the 10 megahertz band every afternoon. The ARRL has announced that its very popular Logbook of the World has been upgraded to support awards based on Maidenhead grid squares such as VUCC and the Fred Fish Memorial Award. 
Logbook of the World is an online system for hams to use to confirm two-way contacts. It can also be used for various ARRL awards. Until now, it has been limited to confirming contacts on the high-frequency bands. Now members of the ham community who enjoy operation on 50 MHz and above can utilize its services as well. To take advantage of the new features, you need to log in to your Logbook of the World account or create one if you are not already a user. After that, just follow the outlined procedures found on the Logbook of the World pages. More information on how to do this at the ARRL website. The CGC Communicator reports that President Obama has signed an executive order instructing government agencies to modify, streamline, expand, or repeal regulations that cause unnecessary burdens. As a result, a number of FCC rules might be eliminated or improved. At this time, which ones cannot be speculated on? More on this latest development out of Washington online at tinyurl.com slash White House Executive Order. ICOM is out to stop whoever is supplying counterfeit copies of its popular ICV8 2-meter handheld radio. Norm Seeley, KI7UP, has the details. Fake transceivers, battery packs, and chargers began being reported in 2010. ICOM says that the differences between a real model ICV8 handheld and the knockoff phony radios are so small that a blind user might not know that they were using a fake radio. For example, the number 2 key on the real ICV-8 is for the P-beep function. On the fake radio, number 2 is Vox. Also, on the back of the real ICOM product, the serial number tag is black, while it is white on the fake radios. Even accessories are being cloned. The F-21 battery pack looks like an ICOM, but there are two differences. The fake does not have the ICOM logo and carries the part number BP-208, instead of BP-209N, as found on the real ICOM battery. Lastly, the optional factory remote microphone is designated by ICOM as the HM-133, while their counterfeit is HM-133V. ICOM says that a real HM-133V is for other radios in their product line. ICOM says that if you find a product that you may suspect is counterfeit, please report it to the company's support center. Contact ICOM at 2380-116th Avenue Northeast, Bellevue, Washington, 98004 in the United States, or by phone to area code 425-454-8155. You can now access 55 receivers worldwide on the globaltuners.com website. Receivers online operate a variety of modes, including the AM and FM broadcast bands, the shortwave spectrum, HF and UHF bands in various modes. Countries currently online include the USA, Australia, Finland, France, Germany, Greece, Italy, Hong Kong, the Netherlands, the Slovak Republic, Sweden, and the United Kingdom, to mention only a few. So far, there are 33,777 registered members, and you will have to sign up for an account if you wish to control a receiver. More information, take your web browser to www.globaltuners.com. Global Tuners, of course, spelled as one word. The Arisat-1 amateur radio experimental satellite is now in Kazakhstan. The NASA Phase 3 safety review for Arisat was scheduled for last Thursday, January 20th, with the Russian Progress 41P launch carrying Arisat-1 scheduled for liftoff late this month. Release of the Arisat-1 satellite is scheduled for the end of February from the International Space Station. Meantime, the Russian Soyuz manufacturer RSC Energia is also calling the Arisat-1 satellite KEDR. This in honor of cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin's call sign, and also in celebration during the 50th anniversary of the first manned spaceflight that took place April 12, 1961. RSC Energia has information and photographs about the satellite at its news site. Sergei Sumbarov, RV3DR, is shown in the photos with the satellite. URL is tinyurl.com slash 46ALTBF. Listen for space tourists to once again operate on orbit from the International Space Station sometime in or after 2013. This after Russia announces it will start selling multi-million dollar tourist tickets to the International Space Station after a four-year hiatus. 
Virginia-based Space Adventures has had no seats to sell for the zero-gravity voyage since billionaire Cirque du Soleil founder Guy Laliberté flew to the orbiting outpost back in October 2009. But according to recent news reports, beginning in 2013, it will again offer three 10-day trips per year to the space station aboard Russian Soyuz spacecraft, thanks to a deal between itself, the Russian space agency Roscosmos, and Soyuz manufacturer RSC Energia. If you're planning a trip to Great Britain and will be taking a VHF or UHF radio with you, listen up. The United Kingdom Repeater website has been given a new look for the new year, making it easier to find information. There are improved search facilities with separate database and document searching. The document search gives a more effective search of previous committee minutes and other reference material, while the database search allows for searching various repeater data fields, for example, keeper call sign, frequency, channel, and mode. The site lists all United Kingdom FM, D-Star, and ATV repeaters. Also, a new RSS news feed and Twitter posting are now available. See www.ukrepeater.net for more. And now, with his segment on working amateur radio satellites, here is AMSAT North America's own Bruce Page, KK5DO. HO68, or XW1, Project Manager Alan Kung, BA1DU, sent an update on the satellite's operational status. Alan wrote, quote, This week I received many reports from all over the world about faults of HO68's telemetry beacon, unquote. Alan continues, After we analyze the situation of the satellite, we think that the software in the payload management MPU was not running properly. Software crashes stopped communication between the payload management MPU and the satellite management unit. This caused the problem with the beacon and caused an abnormal switch of the transponder mode. On January 14th, AMSAT China controller switched the satellite into safe mode at 0300 UTC. They turned off most of the onboard units and then at 0440 UTC repowered up. The satellite returned to normal operating mode and so far the beacon has continued to operate normally. AMSAT China said they will not upload commands to the satellite to change the transponder operating schedule for the next week. The command team will continually monitor HO68 operational status this week. Thanks to Alan, BA1DU, for this article. This is Bruce Page, KK5DO. From the United States of America, you're listening to Amateur Radio's premier news magazine of the air. This Week in Amateur Radio International. Hey sis, what's with all these pigs? I heard there was going to be a ham fest, so I brought these pigs. A ham fest is like a big amateur radio flea market. People show up, not pigs. I think you should go and watch some paint dry. I like to watch paint dry. I paint a wall and I watch it dry. Here's a brush. Springtime is Hamfest time, and that's the subject of the next Random Access Thought, coming up in just a few minutes, right here on This Week in Amateur Radio. Hi, this is John Androsik of Five for Fighting, here for RAD, the entertainment industry's voice for road safety. You know, style is a personal thing, and your lifestyle is your business. But if you take it on the road, it becomes everybody's business. So please, plan ahead, designate before you celebrate. Friends, don't let friends drive drunk. A public service announcement brought to you by RAD, the National Association of Broadcasters, and the Ad Council. We now pause 10 seconds for station identification. We're on shortwave and the internet. This week in amateur radio. In touch.
Media 2, ETV at the East Greenwich Amateur Radio Festival. The sun is beginning to shine, and the, and the food is uh, being cooked, and the smells are wonderful smells are coming through the air, standing by for anybody who might need directions. Connecting to... The Random Access Thought. Oh, hello there. Zach Barron here. Did you know that springtime is Hamfest time? We just got back from a really big little Hamfest sponsored by the East Greenbush Amateur Radio Association. And to be sure, my dad did bring along his cheap $49 Radio Shack audio cassette tape recorder to capture some of the action. First guy we ran into was Dennis, KB2SBL, who gave us the inside skinny on his remarkable collection of electronic gadgets. Well, this one is a nice clean one. Battery compartment's clean. Tell me what it is. And uh, it's a Midland. 12 channel 5 watt. CB, CB, crystal controlled. 12 channels. What about the other one? The other one is an old realistic. TRC100B. It's one of the uh, first edition 100Bs because it uses the or has the old realistic tag on it instead of the Radio Shack tag. How many of these radios do you have all the way around? The particular realistic or all? No, all your radios, tape recorders, and other devices. Oh, I can't even begin to start calculating tape recorders in with this. Walkie-talkies, I have about 1,500 pair. So that's about 3,000 radios. Where do you live? What room? In a house. What room in the house? Um, one of the rooms I, I stay in, and uh, uh, three of them are full of radios. After Dennis, we met up with my very own godfather, Bill W2XOY, who, without too much warning, immediately launched into his personal best sales pitch. What we have here is a table. Now we're at the East Greenbush Ham Fest. This is Bill, W2XOI. And at this table, we have a time warp. We have radios that date back about 35 to 40 years in mint shape. They are chrome. They weigh about six or seven pounds each. They are about 10 inches high, four inches wide, two inches deep. They have a huge 60-inch telescopic antenna. Uh, they use crystals to transmit and receive, and they're called walkie-talkies. And these are more than just radios. They're works of art. It's like an art deco type of thing. All right. This is back when people took pride in building their radios, just like when, when they made cars, and they would put chrome on the cars, and they would put tail fins. Later that same day, and they would put wraparound windshields, and they would put all of this, these flourishes. This is the equivalent. You'll notice it gleams. You'll notice that even the lettering is highlighted in chrome. You'll notice there's a splash of color. All right? You'll notice a genuine analog meter. You'll notice that it's hefty. It makes a statement. This statement says, I exist, therefore I transmit. <laughs> and this is what radio is all about. Today we have these little surface mount technology plastic boxes that are so small, you could lose them in the toilet. But this wouldn't even fit. It would break the toilet. Later that same day, you could use this as a weapon. When I was a security guard back in the 1970s, I was working with a man named Reginald. And one day, while I was at the Dog Biscuit Factory, and this is a true story, uh, I had a radio, two-way radio that they provided me. It was a Motorola, but it was not uh, this. This is, by the way, uh, this is a Midland, uh, what is this, the 13772? No, this is the 775. Uh, you've got the 772. You've got the 772 right there. 
but it was a Motorola HT about this size and I had to go into what they called the tallow room where they had this disgusting stuff that was melting that eventually they would put into the dog food and the door closed behind me and the tallow room was kept at about 110 degrees and I had to get out I had to hammer my way out I used the Motorola I banged that Motorola like a hammer on the door forcing it open you think you could do that with a little Yesu uh, VX7? No. Later that same day. So, what we have here again, and, and you'll notice the styling. You'll notice the styling, okay? They change styles. Look at, look now, this one here, again, you'll notice that this one here is got less chrome, but it's got more color to it. And this one here, even though it's somewhat simpler. This one's later 70s. Yeah, that's the later 70s. That's because the. Because they went to the plastic front and right. the plastic back. Yeah, this still is kept a, the center frame. Right, they kept, metal frame. See, that's another thing that radio manufacturers don't understand today. All right, a handheld, you need a good ground system. The ground system is your own body. All right, you are basically capacitively coupling yourself to the radio. How can you capacitively couple yourself to plastic? You can't. You need metal. Later that same day. Now this is a Radio Shack TRC-235. This radio has a historical significance in the world of CB walkie-talkies. This was the very last crystal-controlled CB walkie-talkie ever produced. Radio Shack made crystal-controlled walkie-talkies long after everybody else abandoned them, and this was carried in the catalog up until 2002. It's bland. As you can see, it's just plastic, and, you know, they try some little cutesy styling touches, but it just doesn't work. It doesn't make a statement. It doesn't make a statement like this 13772. Well, I mean, feel, you can even feel the clicking. You can you feel, you can feel the contacts moving as you... It's very sexy. Well, it is. It, it, it's very impressive. Look at that. I mean, truly, this looks like, it, it, this, this truly is a manly, this is a man's man's radio. It's very manly. And now, before we sign off, here's a choice selection of unique ham radio sound bites from this year's really big little ham fest at East Greenbush, New York. Live from the men's room in the Castle Club, this is WB2HZT. Hello, this is Sid Wallen, and I listen to This Week in Amateur Radio. Hi, this is Frank Fallon, N2FF at East Greenbush uh, Hamfest here today on a Saturday. Uh, I only have one thing to say, www.samara.com. These radios, you can hear them. Because they have a two-watt audio amplifier in them not a hundred milliwatt Mine. you could set this on this table walk 100 feet away and still be able to hear the person talking on here clearly and loud well that's true it is work a deal you gonna work a deal with them <laughs> a penny a penny what happened to the four bucks yeah it's under four bucks so 3.99 what does Tony have to say? Anything? Not a thing. We're just waiting for the Chinese buffet. There we go. My only comment is no comment. No comment? What'd you buy? I bought a scanner, I bought an antenna, and I bought a power supply. Power supply? Which is Uh, Waz. Oh, this! Oh, this is a classic. Yeah. This is, this this is, is a This is a, a classic Frank. These are the uh, white uh, polystyrene packing peanuts. Uh, which are recyclable, and if you have to ship something somewhere, this is the way to go. This stuff is expensive. You go to the UPS store, that's like a uh, something like four or five dollars a cubic foot. Now, what's your price? Oh, uh, I don't know. A bag like this is probably like a quarter. <laughs> this is Bill Barron. Cease communications immediately. You're back to uh, the days of cassette yes. tapes, and let me guess. This is going to be a segment on This Week in Amateur Radio. You bet. And thank you very much for attending the East Greenbush Ham Fest. Thank you. Got to run. N to F and H. Disconnecting from...
the Random Access Thought. Dear, what is that remarkable device? Well, my love, this is my latest invention. The automatic, internet, blog posting, machine, and industrial strength electromagnetic vacuum cleaner. A most unusual concept. Now, please observe. I have just placed some simple keywords into the machine, and now the blog you later will automatically compose a perfect article for my personal blog. A bit more refinement. Yes, well, the vacuum cleaner still works. Nice bowling ball. Yours? No, your father's. From across the street. Moderately interesting. Quite. Bummer. Attention, this week in amateur radio listeners. Have I got news for you. Now at www.twiar.org. Our new staff blogs. See what's going on behind the scenes and get all the latest inside poop from the gang here at This Week. All you have to do is get to www.twiar.org and click on Staff Blogs. That's www.twiar.org and click on Staff Blogs. Get the inside skinny on This Week in Amateur Radio right away. Ancient Amateur Archives. I'm Bill Continelli, W2XOY. Three memorable events occurred in my life in 1971. I turned 18, I graduated from high school, and I passed my general. To celebrate, I bought myself an old VW bus and installed radios for 11, 10, 6, and 2 meters. Thus began my lifelong love of mobile operations. I soon encountered a problem. The VW bus was 76 inches tall. With four antennas on the roof, my total height was 136 inches, or 11 feet 4 inches. I had a park on the street as the driveway at my parents' house had an eight-foot clearance by the back door. Parking garages were now off-limits. Still, except for these two restrictions, I had no problems in getting around. My hometown, Buffalo, New York, is very flat and is laid out in a combination of a spoke and grid pattern. Clearances under railroad bridges were at least 12 feet. No street was off-limits. Even when I upgraded to a Ford Econoline van, 80 inches tall, my overall height was only 11 feet 8 inches, low enough to make it under any bridge. I had a ball mobile, working hundreds of stations across town and across the world. When I moved to Albany, New York in the early 80s, however, I ran into trouble. Unlike Buffalo, the Capital District of New York is not centralized. It consists of three medium-sized cities, and half a dozen smaller cities and villages hemmed in by hills, valleys, and two major rivers. It is also a far older area than Buffalo, filled with densely populated narrow streets that climb steep hills and twist and turn through small valleys. In many areas, there was simply no room to allow for adequate clearances under bridges. As a result, there are over 10 bridges with clearances less than 11 feet. One is just three blocks from my office. I had a choice, put on shorter antennas or learn alternate routes. I kept the antennas, of course. It wasn't hard to find other streets, and soon I thought I had the problem solved. Until I came to Weaver Street. I was living in Rotterdam, a suburb of Schenectady. According to the map, the shortest distance from point A my house, to point B, downtown Schenectady, 
was down Weaver Street. I set out one day on a trip downtown. I never made it. I turned onto Weaver Street. One hundred feet later, I saw the sign and the bridge. The clearance, eight feet, nine inches. I came to a complete stop, with cars honking behind me. I couldn't believe it. Eight feet, nine inches on a major street? I made a U-turn and went home. I looked at the Ford van and I asked myself, are these antennas really worth it? I got in the van, drove around, and worked Scotland and the Virgin Islands repeater on 10-meter FM, came home and said, yes. And so I avoided Weaver Street. I eventually traded the van in for a Ford Escort wagon. The wagon was only 56 inches tall, but my problem actually became worse. For, at the same time I got the Escort, I also bought an ICOM 725 HF mobile rig and ham sticks for 75 through 10 meters. The ham sticks were 8 feet tall. With a 4-inch spring, my total height was now 13 feet. Dozens of streets were now off-limits, not just because of low bridges, but also because of trees and even some cable or power lines. My parents had also moved to the Albany area, but, shades of 1971, I couldn't pull in their driveway thanks to a cable line only 11 feet high. Believe it or not, that wasn't the worst. The Escort was equipped with the ICOM HF rig, a 6-meter sideband radio, a dual-band mobile unit, a 10-meter FM rig, and a CB radio. How did I fit all of these in an Escort? Simple. I turned the front passenger seat into a radio platform. My two kids were young at the time, and they rode in the back seat. When we went out as a family, we took my wife's minivan. On the rare occasions we had to use my car, the wife and kids were crammed into the back of the Escort while the radios rode shotgun. Yes, they complained, but I had 37 states and 31 countries logged. The radios and antennas stayed. But times change and life evolves. The ICOM developed a transmit problem, the TriMag mount corroded, the kids were growing, and the Escort was old. I traded in the old wife for a newer, vastly improved model, and got a great deal, and the Escort for a Hyundai. The new car was smaller than the Escort and had only two doors. For a change of pace, I decided on a radically different approach. The radio presence in the Hyundai would be minimal, a dual-band HT and a small CB. Both easily fit in the center console. A three-foot mag mount on the trunk and a dual-band glass mount were the only antennas. My new height was only 76 inches, or 6 feet 4 inches. New worlds were opened up to me. I discovered something called the drive through wherein one can purchase food or conduct banking business from the comfort of the driver's seat. I explored the inside of something called a parking garage and marveled at my ability to drive unimpeded through such a structure. I enjoyed the sensation of actually having my passenger sit next to me instead of somewhere behind me. And I drove down Weaver Street. I was scared. I watched my speedometer as I approached the bridge. 10, 20, 30 miles per hour. I braced for the impact, but nothing happened. People no longer stared at my car. My kids were no longer embarrassed to ride with me. My wife was happy. But I wasn't. There was a void in my life that couldn't be filled with QSOs on the local repeater. And I started to hear the whispers. The voices kept saying, If you call CQ, they will answer. Like I said earlier, times change and life evolves. My older daughter is now 17, has her driver's license and her own car. My driving patterns changed, and 99% of the time I drive alone or with only one passenger. In 2003, I turned 50. It was time for my midlife crisis. I bought a Yaesu FT8900 quad band rig and an ICOM IC718 HF radio. I dug out my hamsticks. My co-worker, Jim, K-E-2-Y-Z, gave me a tri-mag mount. 
And so, one Saturday morning, I once again turned the front passenger seat into a radio platform and increased my vehicle's height to 13 feet. My younger daughter isn't too keen on riding in the back seat, and I got the look of death from my wife when she had to ride back there. Once again, I am banished from dozens of streets. I abandoned Weaver Street, the drive-thrus, and the parking garages without a backward glance. My car draws stares from people on the street. I can't pull in my parents' driveway anymore. Was it worth it? I check into e-cars and the 1010 net on a regular basis. I can work Europe on my 10-minute commute to work. And I can access 10-meter repeaters from Florida to Texas. For me, the answer is yes. The voices are satisfied, and I am complete. Your time is up. Go in peace. But return again for our next installment of the Ancient Amateur Archives. with the latest technology news and commentary from Petaluma, California. This Week in Amateur Radio is proud to present Leo Laporte. Well, a good day to you, Leo Laporte here, the tech guy. And it's time to talk about computers, the Internet, cell phones, camcorders, MP3 players, um, <laughs> all that stuff. The list gets longer all the time. Everything's got a chip in it these days. Digital photography, surround sound. I saw an amazing uh, demonstration. This is a perfect example of how Chips are changing everything. When I was at CES a couple of weeks ago, and I hope you heard our CES shows. If you didn't, uh, they're available in podcast form. But anyway, then, um, there was, it was the last thing, actually, I saw before I left Las Vegas on Sunday afternoon. Scott Wilkinson and I, uh, we said, one, one last chance to kind of find something cool and new and different at CES. We'd seen all the 3D TVs. He'd gone over to see the high-end audio at the Venetian you know, I'm, I'm less interested in high-end audio. I'm less interested, I guess, from a theoretical point of view, but I'm not going to spend $20,000 on a pair of speakers. And I don't know very many people who will. That's a, that's a, that's a hardcore enthusiast, not a normal you and me. But I, but I, but I, he said, you know, there's, I heard there was something in, in surround sound that was kind of interesting and, I, and I'd like to go see it. And I said, oh, you mean the hire? And he said, yes. And I said, well, let's go. There's a Swiss company called, I think it's Sonic Emotion. And uh, they make a chip. They don't make speakers. They make a chip which they sell to speaker manufacturers <clears throat> that take a stereo two-speaker system or maybe a six-speaker. You know, now they have these sound bars sometimes you can put in front of your TV. And they use digital, very sophisticated digital technology to, to take those basically stereo systems. They're in front of you left and right and fill the room with surround sound, be able to play stuff behind you, above you, below you you know, 30 degrees off center and 15 degrees above the horizon, anywhere in this sphere that surrounds you. They call it the sound stage. And I'm always skeptical. We've seen a lot of sound bars in the past, and they're really a way for people who don't have the space or the money to do a, you know, five, six, seven, eight speaker system to kind of eh, simulate it, I guess. So I was a little skeptical, but I'd heard such good things uh, from my friend Robert Heron, who is a home theater expert. Scott himself had heard really interesting reports about this. So we went over to the Sonic Emotion booth and they had a $100 Kobe speak. Now, Kobe, C-O-B-Y, if you know the name, is a really kind of a low-end uh, audio video company. They make very inexpensive cameras and stuff. You know, f you know this kind of stuff you see at Target or, or Walgreens, you know, inexpensive stuff. They had a $100 soundbar. And then higher, which is not next tier up, they're not the high-end audio, but they had a $350 soundbar. Small thing, wasn't much bigger than a clock radio. It sits in front of your TV. And in the booth, it was great. It was actually a great demo. They had a booth with a button, big red button. And if you walk up to the button and you press it, it goes to the stereo mode. It just turns off the sonic emotion chip, and the speakers are doing what they would do without any help from digital signal processing or any of the sophisticated electronics. And it sounds kind of, frankly, like tinny speakers right in front of me. You let go of the button, and boom, the room fills. There's sound coming from all around you. It was mind-boggling. 
That was $350. So I went around the corner. Okay, well, how does this do with the Kobe? That's 100 bucks. Same thing. Unbelievable. It went from tinny stereo to surround sound. Now, I imagine, and oh, Scott was impressed, and he, he knows his home theater. I imagine somebody who's like a home theater aficionado would say, oh, Leo. Oh, please, Leo. <laughs> Don't call that surround sound. That's not surround sound. But I was very impressed. Kobe's selling theirs right now. Hire's going to sell theirs in uh, a few months. And this Swiss company, Sonic Emotion, is going to be selling their chip to other companies. And if, you know, as you as you get higher end and you put them in, say, let's say a, a Polk audio soundbar with, with really nice speakers, this is a really great thing. It is just gives you it's it's it, I was very impressed. But the, and the reason I bring it up is this is an example of how chips change everything. These, this, these, the chips they're selling are digital signal processors. They work with analog signals, but they still, it's still a computer brain taking information and in real time, it has to do it very quickly, obviously, making such major transformations that it, that it, uh, it changes everything. Chips change everything. And I, it just blew me away. So that's really what this show is about is, is how things change when you move to the digital domain, what you can do with them. Just think about your vinyl records. Some of you will remember those. You know, if you wanted to duplicate it, you would dub it to a tape. And every time you made a copy of that tape, it would sound worse and worse and worse and worse. In fact, every time you played the vinyl record, it would sound worse and worse and worse and worse. As soon as we were able to take this audio, this analog audio, these little wiggly waveforms, and turn them into ones and zeros, that stopped, right? Now, maybe there was a little bit of degradation in the digitizing process, the getting from the little wiggly waves to ones and zeros. And that's true. There's a, a little bit, mostly inaudible. In fact, in my opinion, at least for people like us, unless <laughs> you have golden ears, completely inaudible. Only theoretically do you know that there's stuff missing. I mean, it, it's, it, they, they, it's pretty good. But once you make it ones and zeros now, what can you do? Well, you can transmit it at the speed of light. Couldn't do that with vinyl. You can make infinite perfect copies. Couldn't do that with vinyl, much to the chagrin of the record companies you can modify it you can edit it easily you can mash it up with other music easily that's why all of a sudden in the 80s and 90s as computers came along we started to see more and more of these mashups where people would take songs match beats do some interesting stuff once they're bits the sky's the limit so that's what this show is about really. when we were also at ces we talked to the guy who invented visicalc the first spreadsheet program he created the idea of a spreadsheet program bob frankston and he says, it's time to take back the Internet. He said that the phone companies and the cable companies have no interest in giving us the Internet we deserve. Of course they don't. <laughs> why, why would they? Their, their chief interest is making as much money off they, as they can off the existing infrastructure. But he says there's an interesting problem here for them, especially for the cable companies. They, they see their business dissolving in front of their eyes. Why do you think Comcast just bought it NBC? Because they want to get in the content business. Comcast had divested all their, you know, they had Liberty Media. They had a big content division, which they got rid of in the in the 90s because they didn't want to be in content. They thought, oh, the money will be in the cable and a thousand content providers will compete for access to our customers. Well, the Internet changed all that, didn't it? And now it's the people who make the stuff that are in the driver's seat because there's a thousand ways to deliver it all via the Internet. Comcast realizes it can't make as much money as an Internet company selling wholesale bits as it can as a cable company selling premium content. So Bob says this is an opportunity for us to take back the Internet. Take back that old copper they don't want anymore. They're getting out of the copper business. Maybe we can do something with it. We don't need to have the, we don't have the same maybe community, community Internet or even apartment building Internet or neighborhood Internet. So, Eric, this was a shock uh, on uh, Thursday. We were wrapping up. I was wrapping up one of my podcasts, Windows Weekly, and somebody in the chat room, and I, this is one of the things I love about the chat room. They, they are... They are like Twitter, like, um, well, Twitter's probably the next analogy. They're, they're the early warning system. They're the news of the Internet. You know, if you keep Twitter, you know, running in the background, as I do, anything important happens, you're going to see it. And our chat room is like that. And probably uh, what happened was uh, it came first to the to, through the Twitter feed. The chat room saw it and picked it up and told me. But what a shocker. Google's earning call uh, for their uh, fourth quarter. Uh, and they announce, besides great earnings, that their CEO is stepping down. Google's boss is stepping down. And even a bigger surprise, one of the founders of Google, Larry Page, the man Google's page rank is named after, the guy who figured out the whole thing back as a, a graduate student at Stanford, is taking over. That's kind of the reverse life cycle for most tech startups. Usually, 
the founders run it for a while and then realize they need some adult supervision and they bring in uh, a professional manager, somebody with lots of experience, like, let's say, oh, yeah, Eric Schmidt, who ran Novell for many years, has lots of experience as a CEO. They bring him in and uh, he runs the place and that's it for the founders. They slowly fade away, you know, buy yachts, which they're doing. Larry's buying a 45-foot yacht. Um, you know, buy Gulfstream private jets. They have several. Become playboys. You know, enjoy life. They're rich. They're rich. They don't need to run a company. And the founders fade off. This company goes public, makes everybody a lot of money, and then becomes just another company. Eh, Google's never been just another company, have they? They've always had a different kind of vision. In fact, Eric Schmidt tweeted about this, and he said, no adult supervision no longer needed. He says uh, that they'd been talking about this since Christmas. I think Google has a tradition uh, of, uh, you know, basically it was the three of them. Larry Page and Sergey Brin, who founded uh, Google. And, who, who I, you know, I in the early days of Google, were very accessible. You could talk to them. They were great guys, very interesting, very smart. And, uh, and then the adult supervision, Eric Schmidt, the CEO. Eric, in the last year, though, has kind of maybe been not a huge asset. I don't know. I can't, I can't speak for uh, in. In how they feel internally. But I have to say, from the point of view of an outsider, a journalist covering Google, has not been a huge asset. He said things that just make people feel a little creepy about Google. Uh, he was the subject of that very creepy video. Remember, I don't know if I, I talked about this on the show. They showed it in Times Square. There's some, a, a group, a public interest group, made a video of Eric Schmidt as an ice cream man going around collecting information. It was a creepy ice cream man about the kids. It's really creepy. He'd really become the focus of people's nervousness about Google and Google's intentions. And, you know, he kind of looked the part. He kind of he wasn't the young, hip entrepreneur. He was the suit. And he said things that were a little odd. So I have to wonder if some of this is is the founders saying, yeah, well, thank you. You run you're running the company well, but we don't think you represent the company that well. He's going to be moved upstairs, basically up and out is, is what they call it. Uh, Larry Page will run the company. He'll be the CEO starting in April, April 4th. And uh, Sergey Brin, the other founder, is going to be the product guy. This is kind of how a traditional startup works. It may be part of it is that Google wants to be more like a startup and less like a mainline big company. They've always kind of thought that would be the best way to be. In fact, it's one of the things that kind of hurt Microsoft is that loss of the entrepreneurial spirit, of the nimbleness, of the aggressiveness of a startup. And, and, and once you become a company like IBM, you're just coasting. And I think Google doesn't, doesn't want that to happen to them. So quite a shock. And you know, one of the questions a lot of people say was, well, was he fired? Well, I don't think he stepped down voluntarily. There was no talk about this. It just happened quite suddenly. Uh, I think... It's in all likelihood uh, he's going willingly. They gave him a hundred million dollar bonus. He is a multi billionaire thanks to Google. Doesn't need the money. Uh, there's probably a lot of other things he can do. It's not a question of that. There's some pride, I'm sure, involved. And he was very gracious in his post. He he blogged about it. But the tweet is a little shows some sting, doesn't it? No more adult supervision needed. The kids are taken over. There's a little sting. There's a, I, I sense a little hurt. Here's some of the Gizmodo. Thanks to the chat room for posting this link. Gizmodo uh, has had a post. Ten things we can't believe Eric Schmidt ever said. Uh, one of the one of the things that Larry and Sergey said is our motto is don't be evil. We don't want to be evil. We want to we want to be a successful company without doing evil. Eric said once one person's definition of evil is another person's different definition. Huh? <laughs> Here's another one. One day we had a conversation where we figured we could just try and predict the stock market, and then we decided it was illegal, so we stopped doing that. <laughs> Eric's the guy who said, uh, we want Google to tell you what you should be doing next. You know, I understand what Eric's saying, and, and I don't. it doesn't scare me, but it doesn't come off well when he says, more and more searches are done on your behalf without your needing to type. I actually think most people don't want Google to answer their questions. They want Google to tell them what they should be doing next. Now, I understand what he means when he says that, but boy, that scares normal people like crazy. <laughs> To me, that just that's what we want. We want the computer to be smart enough to kind of know what we want so we don't have to ask it. We just, you know, it just says, oh, I, I know where you are. You're probably looking for this. Let me give you that information. That doesn't bother me as a technologist, but I bet it bothers a lot of other people. And it's probably not the right thing for your CEO to be saying in public. Here's one of his most famous ones. Google's policy is to get right up to the creepy line and not cross it. 
don't think people hear that and not cross it. They just hear Google's policy is to get right up to the creepy line. Eric, <laughs> I can just imagine. <laughs> Uh, but one of the, you know one of the reasons we like Google is they're not quite so polished. I'd be a lot more scared of Google if they were really polished and effective and had a great you know PR front. And in a way, it's kind of interesting to hear the, the CEO say what he really thinks. However, I have to think that it, that it hurt him a little bit. Those were all this year or 2010, I should say. And so I think that it's telling that Eric is moving down, that Larry Page, the founder, is moving in, and I think the goal is to make Google back, turn Google back into an entrepreneurial startup where they began. Can they do it? Be interesting to watch. We don't know if Keith Olbermann or Eric Schmidt were fired, but boy, it sure looks like they both were, doesn't it? I'm Leo Laporte, the tech guy. You know what, Zach? What, Marilyn? I think that Twitter is fabulous. Yeah, you could say that. Twitter is the next big thing. Big? Yeah, real big. Twitter is a fantastic idea to bring friends closer together. Marilyn, I don't think our friends want to get closer with Twitter. Well, what do you mean? Twitter! Oh, Twitter! Here, girl! This is not the Twitter I was talking about. She followed me home from school. Just like your big dog. You clean the bird cage then? I will, Marilyn. I will. Here's a special news bulletin. Godzilla is now in New York City. Check out our new Twitter sites. Go to www.twitter.com forward slash T-W-I-A-R and get up to date on the latest amateur radio news headlines. My dad is at forward slash N2FNH. Greg Williams is at forward slash K4HSM. And our executive producer, George, at forward slash W2XBS. But check out the main site at Twitter to go backstage at This Week in Amateur Radio right now. And finally this week, the use of Morse code is up. So says a writer for World Radio Online Magazine. David Black, KB4KCH, is in our Southeast Bureau with the details. In the current no-code era of amateur radio, you might think no one's using code. But that's not what an analysis by World Radio Online columnist Randall Noon, KC0CCR, suggests. The FCC dropped the Morse code testing requirement back in 2007. Since then, Noon's research indicates that levels of on-air ham activity and Morse code usage have increased. Noon writes about his analysis in February's issue of World Radio Online. He looked at a combination of FCC licensing statistics and published results of ARRL field day activity from 2005 to 2009. He used field day data on the assumption that field day participants are at least minimally active ham radio operators. Noon compared statistics for field day activity with the total number of licensees. Noon determined that both the raw number and the percentage of licensed hams operating in field day had increased since 2007. In addition, he finds that the number of Morse code contacts in field day have increased as well, hitting an all-time peak in 2009. That, he says, is significant, quote, because it is assumed that hams will use the same modes on field day that they do when operating at other times. Since the FCC stopped requiring code tests, Noon concludes it appears that CW has gained in usage. That's because newer hams licensed since 2007 appear to be more actively engaged in the hobby as the higher levels of field day participation suggest. Noon is no stranger to Morse code. He's also the magazine's Fists columnist. Fists is an organization that promotes the use of Morse code among hams worldwide. The complete analysis appears in the February 2011 issue of World Radio Online, which was to be posted on or about January 20th at www.worldradiomagazine.com. The magazine is available to readers online at no charge. That wraps up another edition of This Week in Amateur Radio International. 
We're back again next week right here on WBCQ on 7.415 megahertz. Same time, same station, with another edition of This Week in Amateur Radio International. The program is produced by our all-volunteer amateur radio staff and originates from Albany, New York. Our snail mail address is This Week in Amateur Radio International, P.O. Box 30, Sand Lake, New York, 12153. And now, for all of us who bring you This Week in Amateur Radio International, this is Scott Westerman, W9WSW, live to hard drive from our studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico, saying 73 until next week. That was wonderful. Bravo. I loved that. That was great. Well, it was pretty good. Well, it wasn't bad. Well, there were parts of it that weren't very good. It could have been a lot better. I didn't really like it. It was pretty terrible. It was bad. It was awful. I was terrible. Get him away. Hey, boo. Now we return you to the test card and some music. You're still here? It's over. Go home. This Week in Amateur Radio International is a production of Community Video Associates Incorporated. This is the world-famous WBCQ, Monticello, Maine, USA. This is the planet, here for you, WBCQ.